and I'll uh, take up something else next week and I'll announce on Sunday what it's going to be because I haven't made up my mind yet. Um, but it's, it's strange what verses bring you encouragement. Sometimes they are utterly unexpected and seem to have on the surface a point that isn't encouraging. And yet as I dwelt on this verse, which uh, may not strike you the same way it struck me, it wound up having a very profound effect on lifting me up this morning. Um, I'm reading through Exodus and uh, the ten plagues are happening and God is um, hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he does not let the people go. And the last plague is the Passover where if you're a believer you put the blood on the door and the angel of death passes over. And if you're not, you lose your firstborn son. And uh, the summary statement after he describes the Passover in verse 15 of, of Exodus 13 is when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to, to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. It was just so blunt. So I thought, my eldest is Karsten, and if I'd have been an Egyptian living out on the outskirts of town, he'd be dead. I'd be dead because I was a firstborn son. And uh, so in some houses, the son died who was the oldest, the father died, the grandfather died. God killed them, it says. He just killed them. They didn't even know what was happening. Now, as I reflected on that, I thought, how does that sit with people today? preach a sermon on that text. The Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Make that your sermon text. How would that sit with people? And uh, I, think, I think there would be a, an outcry of why, or he has no right to do that, or how can you love a God who kills all these little babies and, and uh, these teenagers and these dads and these granddads. And, and then I thought, no, life is entirely a gift of God. God owns life. God gives and God takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord, Job said. It all depends on where you start. If you start from the centrality of man and our concerns and our rights as we perceive them and our preferences, the will rises up against God to intrude upon that. But if you start at the other end, namely with the Creator God, 
who has absolute creator rights over what he makes, there's no, there's no objection. God does not owe anybody 70 years. Right? I mean, who, who, who could say, you owe me 70 years, you owe me 30 years, you owe me two years, you, you owe me. He doesn't owe anybody anything. And therefore, it isn't murder when God takes the life of a person. It's simply taking back what he gave in a time that he deems wise. It just, it just revolutionizes your whole way of looking at the world. If you let a text like that, that's what was happening, I think, in me this morning. It was just, I had to ask again, do I believe in God? Do I believe in God? Or do I really believe in a... In a bigger human, big strong human in heaven, who better live by the rules, my rules, and treat me equally. I mean, he can have a little more authority and a little more glory, but see, do I believe in God or I believe in human expanded to the nth degree? And uh, I just put my head down and I said, Father, you are God. I wrote my son. Karsten uh, wrote me an email today and got excited because he got accepted to a PhD program. And, and uh, he also is interviewing for a teaching job in Japan. And he doesn't know what to do. And I just kind of was talking about the will of God. And, and then I just shared with him this, this moment in my life this morning. And the way I ended was... Uh, and, and it is a comforting and sweet thing to say, God is God. Yes. Just yes. To the godness of God. He, he can take my son. He can take me. He can take my wife. He, we have absolutely no claim on God whatsoever that he should behave in any particular way of preservation of life on earth. It's a sheer free gift that he can take back anytime he wants according to his wisdom. Lord, we move into this last session on the providence of God with a deep sense that you are God. We want to humble ourselves under you and experience in this lesson tonight some of the practical implications for our lives of embracing you as God, not as a big human, but as God. You have absolute creator rights over all that you have made and you may do with it as you please. And we bow before that and are stunned that you would be so involved with us as to love us and send your son to die for us and raise him from the dead that we might have hope and call us into salvation not by earning or working but by trusting these are staggering gospel truths in view of your absolute freedom over the universe. And we thank you, we praise you that you have called us to yourself. And now guide us tonight, I pray. Teach us, Lord. Open hearts here. May this group of people gathered together be moved deeply in their souls. May sins be resisted and May encouragement be given and discouragement be banished and may perplexities be clarified, Lord, and may loneliness be replaced with fellowship with you and may 
the oppression of hard times be lifted through the mighty hand of a gracious God. Lord, when your word is taught and meditated on like we're going to do now for the next little while together, Satan is very angry. He hates the word of God. It's the sword of the spirit. It's so threatening to him. He can't abide it. And therefore, he tries to pluck it up and throw it away. Would you protect us from him and grant triumph in your word tonight so that it will have effects in our lives and through us in the lives of others that we never dreamed when we came tonight? Do that, Lord, exceedingly and abundantly beyond everything I've been able to ask or think for these moments. For your great glory and for our joy and for the spread of the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'm going to do is uh, review quickly, try to do it quickly, where we went last week, and then uh, come to the end with some practical so what kind of questions and uh, realizing that with a, a topic this huge we'll leave some things unanswered, but maybe there'll be time for questions too at the end. What we did last week was get right down to the issue of um, the providence of God over individual human wills, specifically in regard to salvation. I mean, that is the nub of the issue. We can talk about the providence of God in nature as wind blows, and we can talk about the providence of God in nations, and we can talk about the providence of God in larger groups, and then we can bring it right down to the human individual. Does he actually providentially rule the individual will? And then you can bring it right down to the most important act of will, the will to believe and be saved. Does he control that? Now, what we found is that there are scriptures that point to a universal desire of God for people to be saved, texts like this, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or texts like, um, verse 9 is missing, um, he is not willing that any should perish, 2 Peter 3, 9. Or Ezekiel 18, 23, do I indeed delight in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God, and not rather in his turning from his way that he might live? So those three texts would be texts that say um, God wants everybody saved. God loves everybody and his saving will is toward everybody. And then you have texts like these. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, Jesus said, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. So who, who comes to Jesus? All that the Father gives to him. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise that one up at the last day. Acts 11 It's supposed to be 48. Wait a minute. No, no, I'm sorry. We'll come to 48 in a minute. That's 18. That's right. And when they heard this, they quieted down 
and glorified God saying, well then, this is after hearing about Cornelius' conversion, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance. God granted repentance to the Gentiles that leads to life. Or, Acts 13, 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the, the words as after the sermon in Antioch of Pisidia, glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. There is a something behind this human action of belief, namely an appointment to eternal life. Acts 16, 14, a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, as Paul preached in Philippi, and the Lord opened her heart to respond. The Lord opened her heart to respond. That's what happened to everybody who believes. In 2 Timothy 2.24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, in opposition, if perhaps God may, God may grant them repentance. leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil who held them captive to do his will. That's a rich text because it shows that a good way to, to do uh, exorcisms, that is to free people from the bondage of the devil, may not always be a confrontation that gets the devil's name and then rebukes them in the name of Jesus. That's, that's real. But here you have a, another strategy for helping people escape from the snare of the devil who has held them captive to do his will. How? Well, don't be quarrelsome. Be kind. Teach. Be patient. Be gentle. Correct those who oppose. So it's a, a loving teaching model. Isn't that, isn't that good news? That if you're faithful in being a certain kind of person and boldly speaking truth correctingly into the life of people, that they can actually be freed from the snare of the devil who has held them captive. This is why Neil Anderson talks about truth encounters as well as power encounters. I don't think he would deny the validity of a power encounter. I've been through a few power encounters and uh, nevertheless there are truth encounters. This is one tonight and they happen every Sunday morning and they happen when you are in Bible studies and so on. But the point here is uh, God grants repentance. God may. He's, he's sovereign. He may grant repentance. Now those two sets of texts, the first three that I looked at, and these set up the problem that we addressed last week. And the problem was, can you um, think of God properly as having two 
wills that seem contradictory. A will for everybody to be saved and a will only to save some effectually. And my whole argument last week was that's exactly the way we have to think about God. And that was my first evidence. Those sets of texts is evidence one. I had seven evidences. I think we got through four or five of them. So I want to run through them quickly so to refresh you. What I'm doing <clears throat> is trying to give you biblical reasons for believing that whether you can explain it philosophically or not, the Bible compels us to say that in a coherent, divine, non-psychotic, schizophrenic God, He wills some things that He forbids. And He uh, refuses to do some things that he would like to have done and could do. So that's evidence number one. Here's, here's the next batch of uh, evidences. Namely, the use of the word will of God. This is just to help us get the categories. On the one hand, a term will of God is like not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So here, clearly, some people do it and some people don't. If you do it, then things will go well, and if you don't, they won't. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Some do it, some don't. So will of God here is the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or uh, what moral things God wants to have done and tells us to do, commands us to do. And there's some other text there, will of God. On the other hand, there's a whole use of the word will of God that is very different. The, all these texts, we'll just take out one or two. Take these in Acts here, 18.21. On taking leave of the saints in Ephesus, he said, I will return to you if God wills. To the Corinthians, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. And again, I, I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend time with you if the Lord permits. And so on. Now, that's a very different use of the phrase will of God. Because here, that's sovereign. Paul says, my purpose is to come to see you. But how can I know if I'm going to live or die? That's what it says down here in James. It says, uh... You do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. So that use of the will of God is a sovereign accomplishment of what he decrees. I will get home tonight or I will not get home tonight if the Lord wills. See, that's real different than saying those who do the will of God, please God. Because there you cannot do it or you can do it. You don't, you don't have any choice in this one. This one's going to be done. The will of God will be done. So will of God is used in two different ways in the Bible. One, his moral will, by which he commands what is ethnically fitting for humans to do. 
and the other is a sovereign will by which he accomplishes whatsoever comes to pass. And there you have the tension again. He sometimes commands something that he then sovereignly forbids to happen. Or he forbids something that he sovereignly causes to happen. And you've got to find a way to handle that in your head. Because people will make fun of that when you say it. They'll say he's a schizophrenic or whatever. So in order to believe it, you just need to see it enough in the Bible and then realize that God is God and not man. Now, that's evidence number two. Here's number three. Uh, texts like the one in Exodus where he says, uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, or God says to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. So what's the will of God through the mouth of uh, Pharaoh? I mean the mouth of Moses? The will of God is let my people go. But we've already seen back in chapter 4 verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh which I put in your hand, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let you go. That runs all through those chapters from chapter 4 to 14. Just read it. It's a mind-boggling it's a mind-boggling story. It's no wonder that Paul quoted it in Romans 9. So he says, let him go, Pharaoh. That's the moral will of God. And he will not let them go. God hardens his heart, so will not let them go. That's the sovereign will of God. Here's another example. Isaiah 42, 18. Hear you deaf. This is where we stopped last, last time. So this is all new now. Hear you deaf and look, you blind, that you may see. So he commands hear and look and see. It's a command. But look at this word in Deuteronomy 29. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all the servants and all his land the great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know or eyes to see or ears to hear. They are responsible to hear and look and see. They are responsible to. He's commanding them to. And uh, he's not giving it in this case here. So the will, moral will is look, hear, see, believe. And the sovereign will is he withholds the gracious overcoming of their heart and blind heart. Here's an example from Jesus. Jesus said in Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So he calls them to repent and believe. That's their responsibility. We will be judged for not repenting and not believing. But he says something about his parables here that's puzzling. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Why? So that, this is his purpose, so that 
they may indeed see and not perceive and may indeed hear and not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. There is a judicial blinding or hardening here. Even though he calls everyone to repent and believe, here he is taking a strategy in his earthly life that he knows is going to result in people not perceiving and not understanding and not being forgiven. So here you have the moral will of God, repent, believe the gospel. And here you have the sovereign will of God. Another several examples of this. This is evidence number, uh, that was number three. This is number four. A little different. What this shows, these texts here, is that God has the right and ability to restrain sin in secular people. And we, we sometimes think, well, God doesn't do anything out there outside the church. Uh, and that's their will. That he's just given them up. And, but what we're going to see here is the right and the power of God to intrude into the wills of secular people to, with, to keep them from sinning. And then we'll see an example where he doesn't do that precisely so that he can judge them. This is Genesis 26. Remember Abraham down there saying his wife is his sister and getting her in big trouble so that the king, Abimelech, almost has sexual relations with her but doesn't. And then he finds out the truth. This is what God says to him after he finds out the truth. Yes, I know that in the integrity of your heart you have done this. That is, you took her into your harem. You've done this. I also kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. So here's God involved in the life of a pagan king keeping his sin from being multiplied in a, a gross way that he would, himself would even disapprove of and God would be very angry with. So God can do that. God can do that. He can do it with abortionists. He can do it with unbelieving congressmen and mayors and presidents and representatives. And therefore, when we pray, I, I always pray at two levels. How do you pray for your... We're, we're told to pray for our leaders in 1 Timothy 2. I find it difficult to pray for secular rulers. My first prayer is always that they would be saved. And I, I don't know if the ones I'm praying for sometimes are saved. I couldn't tell you for sure where the spiritual condition of somebody like Paul Wellstone is, or our governor, or our mayor, or whatever. I, I, I have evidences. Go ahead, David. Yes, isn't that remarkable? Yes, that's a great testimony, David. I didn't know that. 
that you had done that. Um, yes, pray that. Start there. But I don't think our prayers are meant to end there. That's, that's primary. I think we are called upon to pray for good and just laws to be made by people who aren't believers. And if you want a biblical warrant for praying those kinds of prayers, this would be one. If, if, if you're persuaded, say, that Bill Clinton's not a believer, he certainly professes to be a believer, but say you're not persuaded and you pray that he be a believer, um, you can also pray, Lord, um, keep him from, and then whatever you think is unjust that he might do, or take some, I mean, whatever side you might be on in the debates going on on the budget, say, or welfare, and you believe God's best for our country is that it go this way, you can pray that those kinds of things be urged upon our congressmen. But now, that's one side. Here's the other side. Remember Eli, the <clears throat> old priest that little Samuel grew up with and who toward the end of his life had such a tragedy with his boys? Let's read about that here. Now Eli was very old and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who served the doorway of the tent of meeting. So that's like, you know, me hearing that my sons are having sex in Sunday school. That's just this is heartbreak, okay? And he said to them, why do you do such things? The evil things that I hear from all these people. No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. In one man, if one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father. Why? For the Lord desired to kill them. Now, this is the refusal to do this. You see? Here, he restrained a king from sinning against him. Here, he refuses to restrain them because he's already done with them. They've, they've crossed the line. He's going to judge them. And so... It's over. Now the point there is that uh, in this case, God's sovereign will accorded with his moral will, right? Thou shalt not commit adultery. So God restrains him and doesn't let him commit adultery. Here, God's sovereign will is the opposite of his moral will because it says they would not listen to their voice of their father. So that's a disobedience of which commandment? One, two, three, four, fourth commandment. Nope, fifth. Fifth commandment, right? Fourth commandment is the Sabbath day. Yeah. Fifth commandment. Thou shalt honor thy father and thy mother. So these boys were dishonoring and disobeying their father, and of course they were obeying the eight, disobeying the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And the reason they were, in spite of all their father's admonitions, is because the Lord had, had refused to do this sovereign work.
So his sovereign will was that they go on and make their sin complete and come into judgment. Question about that? I'm not asking you to figure this out, how this can be. I'm asking you to see whether it is so biblically or not. If we can figure it out, that'll be good. And if we can't, we will live another way. Is there, that's your hand, Andy? The question is, that's right, that's right. The question is, how can you keep from throwing up your hands in um, the thought that God is so completely arbitrary? And the answer is to focus on texts that teach about his purposiveness and his wisdom. See, behind, behind all these choices that God is making is an inscrutable wisdom. And here's a good text to meditate on. Romans 11, 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Who how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has ever given anything to him that he should be repaid for all things are from him and through him and to him. So when Paul writes that doxology at the end of three chapters of inscrutable providence, I mean, you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, and you see the way God is working by hardening the Jews until the full number of the Gentiles come in. And then when the full number of the Gentiles comes in, he takes the veil off of Israel. And so uh, unbelief is leading to the belief is leading to belief. It's, it's also unlike the way we would do it. And at the end, he does not say, fully on an arbitrary God. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. So my answer is, it's a very good question, it's absolutely essential that we get this, that as you ponder the inscrutable choices of God, why does he give up on these boys and come back again and again to a Saul of Tarsus or to a David or you and me? Uh, the answer is inscrutable, divine, purposive wisdom. He has reasons that are hidden. There's a text, maybe, I think I've quoted this before, but it might be good to toss it in here again. I think it's Deuteronomy 29, 29. Again, remember, those are the right verses. That's not the right verse. You may know the verse where it says, well, there's John Salehammer, he'll know. The secret things belong to the Lord. I'm looking at the wrong verse. I'm in Genesis. <laughs> okay. Twenty-nine, twenty-nine. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us 
and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So I, the, the least I get from that verse is that there are some things that God um, keeps for himself. And so please, as you, uh, if you feel like Andy and say, this really looks arbitrary. Now the word arbitrary I take to mean willy-nilly, whimsical, not having good reason or good purpose. I don't think God ever acts like that, though it may look like it at times. Um, um, these two last verses are evidence number five and evidence number six for the fact that there are these two kinds of willing in God. Deuteronomy 28.63 says, As the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. Now that's if they turn away from him. Now the reason I include that here is because this word delight, I believe, is the word in Ezekiel 18, uh, 23 and 32, where it says he does not delight in the death of the wicked. And so if you, if you only have one verse, you say, God has no delight in the death of the wicked. And you bump into a verse like this and he says, you turn away from me and go after other gods, all the curses are going to come upon you and I will delight in bringing ruin upon you. So you say, okay, well the Bible is just full of contradictions. That's one way to go. Or you can say, uh, there is a sense and a level at which he delights in judgment and there's a sense in which he does not delight in judgment. And, and I'll bet you could think of analogies. They wouldn't be perfect, but you can think of analogies in your life where there is some sense of rightness about judgment coming down on sin, and there's another sense in which you just, you wish to goodness it weren't happening. And this is the last verse in Lamentations 3, 32 to 33. Though he causes grief... He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not willingly. I think the Hebrew looks something like this. Milevo. From his heart. He does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of man. What is that? From, that's the literal translation, from his heart. You see, in the context of Lamentations, he is afflicting sorely the apple of his eye, Jerusalem. He, is, he has brought them to horrid judgments. I mean, they're boiling their own children. And uh, it says here, he doesn't do this from his heart. Now, what that suggests to me in this issue of the will of God is that he does some things from his heart and he does some things not from his heart. Which, all I, all, the only words that I can find are that there seem to be uh, depths, perhaps, of willing or kinds of willing. Whatever helps you most, if it looks like he's willing one thing and saying that it shouldn't happen, 
then maybe he's willing it in one sense milevo from his heart and in another sense not from his heart and he has reasons for why he would will something one way and not another way now um, this is a little book and we probably don't have any yet in our bookstore Ian Murray when he was here at the pastor science gave me this called Spurgeon versus hyper-Calvinism Spurgeon versus hyper-Calvinism and uh, hyper-Calvinism is not real robust Calvinism I used to think it meant a real Calvinist must be a hyper-Calvinist <laughs> that's not right a hyper-Calvinist is a very technical phrase that means you believe that nobody should be called to repentance unless they give some evidence of being elect. Or another way to say it is, it is not the universal duty of human beings to repent and believe because you can't make something the duty of someone who's not elect to believe. That's hyper-Calvinism. It's dead wrong and it's unbiblical. And Spurgeon was not a hyper-Calvinist. He was a biblical Calvinist. And there are quotes at the end of this. I was just poking around it. I haven't read the whole thing yet. And there's one here called The Free Agency of Man and God's Desire for the Salvation of All by T.J. Crawford, the professor of divinity at the University of Edinburgh in 1875. And it was so helpful. Just five or six pages. Let me read you just key paragraph. It may be alleged, however, that the invitations of the gospel, besides being expressive of the undisputed fact that whosoever complies with them shall obtain the offered blessings. Okay, So when the Bible says, whosoever will may come, it means that. If you will to come, you can come. That's the first thing he says it means. Not only that, but they are also indicative of a desire on the part of God that all sinners to whom they are held out, these invitations, should comply with them. And, how it may be asked, can such a desire be sincere if it be the purpose of God to confer only on some sinners that grace by which their compliance will be secured. And he simply argues in these six pages whether we can understand it or not, that is in fact the case, that the invitations of God to people to believe, his holding out his hands all day long, like this, like it says in Romans 10, is sincere, even though at another, and here I'm, this is my language, at another level, he is deciding who will and who won't receive his invitations. Can you, can you handle that? That both are true. Let me, let me, I can't remember whether it was in the large group or in a small group afterwards I said this, so I'll say it again, even though it might have been in the large group. It has helped me when people make pronouncements about what is possible for God in these matters, um, 
to think of analogies that we all believe and seem impossible. For example, my guess is every believer in this room believes that God is hearing every prayer that's being prayed right now, everywhere in the world. How many would that be? 50 million, maybe? Probably more. Prayers that are going up to God right now simultaneously. And in that, let's bring it down, 30 million. Say 30 million prayers are being processed by the mind of God right now. And according to the scriptures, he is a faithful high priest who is not unable to sympathize with us and thus encourages us in that confidence to come to the throne of grace. So we are to come with the expectation that he will sympathize, feel with us. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Now you've got 30 million psychological states entering into the mind of God right now. Millions of them are weeping their eyes out over tragedies in their lives. This very moment, ripping their clothes, crying out to God, this very minute, save, rescue. Some horrible tragedy has just happened somewhere in the world. Some awful, awful thing has just happened. And there are 20 million other believers that are so happy right now they can hardly keep their caps on because somebody just got saved and heaven is rejoicing because it says that in Luke 15 so can you begin to explain to me how God sympathizes with 30 million people and have integrity of personality it's just absolutely mind boggling the, the, what, what I find is that this is not a logical issue See, I believe in logic. I can't say that A and not A are both true in the same way at the same time. I mean, the law of non-contradiction seems to me to be the presupposition of all communication. So if I had mega-logical problems, I'd be in trouble. Most of these things that we're pointing out here, all of them, that I see are not logical issues, they're metaphysical, they're being issues, they're how can you imagine such a thing? They're not logically contradictory. Now, I'm, what I'm going to do for the last uh, 30 minutes, uh, or 20 minutes, 25 minutes, is leave my evidences behind and talk about practical implications of of the, we've been on this since September, and we've drawn out a lot of practical implications, but it's good that we end this series tonight on some of those. But I, I do want to give you a chance right at this point just to want to ask a question or make an observation about the, just the observations that we've, we've seen. Any, anybody want to do that? John? Right. The question is, 
Aren't we vulnerable if we embrace what I've just been showing you of being accused that uh, the moral will of God becomes negated by the sovereign will of God and therefore we undermine the Ten Commandments or the morality? And uh, the answer is yes, we, we will be accused of that. Um, what I would say to the person who says that is, all I have to go on in understanding God is what God has been pleased to reveal of God. I cannot out of my own head design God. Nothing would be greater presumption than for me to say, I commend to God that he be this way when his word says he's another way. And so the bottom line will be is, do you see God commanding something? And if so, is that not what we should do? And do you see God at times sovereignly preventing that from coming to pass? And should we not leave that in the secret counsels of God as to why he did that? And if they say, I don't get it, or I don't like it, or I don't buy it, I'm done. I'll, say, I'll pray for you, I, but I don't know what else to say, uh, except to keep pointing out more and more examples. The, you know, when I first came to this, it was the cumulative effect of these kinds of things, seven steps of evidence, or six, I think there were, um, that made me say, I've got to stop trying to twist these texts to mean other than they are and uh, let them be. So prayer and, and uh, pointing out that, uh, yes, we could, we could make the moral will of God negated by the sovereign will of God, but there's no logical reason why we should do that. And biblically, it wasn't done. God holds people accountable for doing what he commands. Here's maybe, maybe there is some more to say. Here's another thought. Um, God has prerogatives that we do not have because he has perfections and wisdom and power that we do not have. And therefore, to say God does this, namely refuses to prevent Eli's sons from sinning, therefore we should follow God in preventing people from sinning, like ourselves. And besides, it says in Ephesians 4, imitate God. Imitate God. So, there, that, that can imagine that argument. And the answer to that would be, it's uh, blasphemy to imitate God in his godness. Adam and Eve, the, the first sin was a temptation to be like God in a way they were never meant to be like God, knowing good and evil, calling the shots, knowing what's good for them. So God set up the garden so that he would know good and evil and would, as a good and faithful father, show them how to be blessed and avoid cursing. And they were to submit like little children and say, yes, we trust you. And the devil comes along and says, he's withholding something really good. You can't really trust him. So why don't you be like him and decide for yourselves what will be good and evil? And that's what a person would be doing if he said, I will copy God in his sovereign will and I'll leave behind his moral will. 
what he told me to do. I won't do what he told me to do. I'll do what he does behind what he told me to do. That's um, a deification of self. That's making yourself God. So that'd be another avenue that I would take to respond. Let's go ahead with the practical stuff. I know there are lots of questions you could ask, but that will be true till you die. So if we keep that up, we won't get to this. I'm not going to look at all these texts. I just want to say that one practical implication of believing in the providence of God is that he's going to triumph in the end. He's going to triumph in the end. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached throughout the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. How in the world does God know that? I mean, that hangs entirely, that right there, on the will of preachers to go and risk their lives among Muslim peoples, several thousand people groups that aren't yet penetrated, Hindu, Buddhist, Muslim, very dangerous. It's going to cost martyrs, according to Revelation 6, 11. How does he know we're going to decide to do that? Because he rules the will. You know, there's this big debate about whether God knows the future today, Clark Pinnock and the others. I read you some of that article last week or last time. And uh, frankly, I dream about, now how should I respond to this? What, what should I write? What should I do? Because we've even got it, I think, in our own schools. <laughs> it's real hard for me to collect texts about the, the foreknowledge of God because to me, the issue is so, it's settled so long before I get to foreknowledge texts because in my simple mind, God knows the future because He writes the future. <laughs> he knows the future because He makes the future. So it, I, I disagree with these guys at such a deep level that it's hard for me to get worked up about dealing with them at the level where they're working. I think God knows this is going to happen because He's going to make it happen. He's going to see to it that, that, that John Piper in the summer of 1966, stopped being a pre-med student. Huh? Nothing wrong with being a pre-med student. <laughs> but that was not the call of my life, though I thought it was in the summer of 1966. And he had to zap me in the hospital for three weeks with mononucleosis, make me drop organic chemistry, cause me to hear uh, John Harold Akengay preach and make this explosion go off in my heart to fall in love with the Bible. That's what happened. God did that. That's called call. Call. I just wrote my son Carson about it because Carson said, he said, I'm not sure I understand call very well and I doubt that my curiosities and desires about Japan have very much to do with it. <laughs> and I, I just wrote him, I said, the call of God is the... Uh, the explosive upping of the ante behind desires until they become irresistible for holy things, a particular thing. And uh, you'll know it when it comes. It gave him some suggestions on how he can open himself to it. So, point, practical point one, and boy, I don't know if it feels practical to you, but nothing feels more practical to me in the ups and downs of my life than to know God's going to win. God's going to win. You're a missionary slogging it out in Guinea over there with very little 
progress among the manica, you need to know God's going to win. You need to know that nothing's done in vain. And he isn't, there's no guarantee that he can win if he doesn't rule the, the wills of men. That's number one. Now what I thought I'd do um, is, is uh, look at one last text. It's a long one, but it's just full of six practical implications. And maybe I can point them out as we go rather than uh, coming back to them. I'll try anyway. It's, it's the prayer. Well, first it's the event, and then it's the prayer of the church in Acts after the apostles get uh, roughed up here. So let me just point out some things. This will be the last thing we look at. When they, the council, had summoned them, the apostles, they commanded them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Now, all authority is appointed by God. This is the ruling authorities, Romans 13. The powers that be are ordained of God. Don't do this anymore, they say. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. So God has ordained that there be rulers and leaders who make laws and proscribe and prescribe. Do not jump to the conclusion that the providence of God over the legal processes of any particular group must be submitted to because God's doing it. The reason I say this is because it sounds sort of rebellious to say God is providentially ordaining that this be spoken by these leaders. Don't speak about Jesus. God is, God, if God rules everything, then he's ruling this command right here. God's ordained that to happen. You, you dare not, this is the same issue that John and I were talking about, you dare not jump over a principle of morality into the sovereign disposals of God and try to align yourself up there with God, ignoring what is right according to His Word and what is right according to them is that um, they obey the command to preach rather than yield to the sovereign uh, disposals of God in this wrong command. This first practical observation. So in, in our context, uh, it might mean that if a law were passed in America that you couldn't spank your children like there is in Sweden, I would go to jail before I would obey that law. Because the Bible says if you don't use the rod, you hate your son. And I frankly am going to obey God. And if they send me to jail, I'm not. See? So even though God would be sovereignly ruling over the lawmaking process, the result of that sovereign rule may be very wrong, bad, from the moral standpoint. And God has his purposes for bringing about such states of affairs. And when they had threatened them further, they let them go. 
finding no basis on which they might punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened for the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. All right, they go back to their friends and they have a prayer meeting and I want you to see this prayer because some of you have asked uh, how do you pray or do you pray? If God rules all things, uh, why pray or how do you pray? And we've talked about it before, but we'll just refer to it again here with this prayer. When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to go to God with one accord. I, I, I put the Greek in there, no big deal. But with one accord, that I believe is possible because they believed in the providence of God together. Because you're going to see here of theology. This is one of the most theologically powerful prayers in the Bible. And this one accord here, this one accord is rooted in this theology. This is why I teach. I don't think we could ever be a church with one accord if we don't come to a mind about some of these great things. Doesn't mean you can't be in process about them. But it means if if we got people all over the map on this, nobody agrees with anybody anything, and, or nobody's thinking about it, this kind of praying will be impossible in Bethlehem. O oh Lord, they prayed, it is Thou who didst make the heavens and the earth and sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, Thy servant, did say, I'm going to stop right there. Let's just ask this. Here they are, beginning their prayer. It's going to go uh, that long. That, that's how much. And they begin it with a quotation from Psalm 146 about God's creative power. Why? Why start this prayer? Do you, do you start your prayers that way? When you say, oh God, Thou who didst make the universe and the sea and every creature in it and the land and every tree and species of flower and then give him your request. Do you, you start that way? Why did they do that? If you go back and read the psalm, I put it on the overhead here. Look at this. I think this is why they did it. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope... This is the verse before the one they quoted. They got this text in their head, probably, or they're poking around. How blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Blessing and hope. The Lord his God who made... Here's what they're quoting. Heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. The reason they quoted this here after their friends had risked their lives is because this God does this. It's the combination of His Creator power giving the punch behind His blessing His people and giving them hope that makes them want to dwell on that mighty, mighty power. It's not just power in the abstract that they have in their mind here when they say, Oh Lord, 
It is thou who didst make the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. It's because their hope for rescue and their hope for blessing is going to be made possible because this is creator power here. So, implication number two or three or whatever we are, practical implication, if you believe in the sovereign creator rights of the providence of God, you begin your prayers that way and it, it, it's like a foundation on which everything else in your hoping prayer is built. Okay, now they got some more scripture they're going to quote. Who by the a Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, did, thy servant, did say. So they're going to quote some more scripture. Oh God, you're creator. And oh God, you said. They haven't got any petitions yet. They're just, they're just reveling in something about God first. And first thing they revel in is he's creator. He makes everything. Now here's the next thing they revel in. He said in Psalm 2, verse 1 and 2, Why... Did the nations or the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, and he's going to apply that to the present rulers who were gathered against Jesus. But what, what, why they quote this? Tell me, what's hopeful in that word? What's the, what's, if I were to circle the, the hope-giving word or phrase, what would I circle? Tell me. What? I still can't hear you. Yes. Peoples devise futile things. That's what I would have circled. The word futile. Right there. What does that mean? When they devise them, what's going to happen? They're not going to work. They're not going to work. What they're reminding themselves of here is that God has already said anybody who devises a plan against his anointed fails. Period. Christ is the anointed. We are Christianos, little anointed ones with him, in him, and therefore, who can bring any charge against God's elect? What can man do to us? Hebrews 13, 6. And Romans 8, 33. Or 1. Alright, now how does he apply it? For truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus. So here's Jesus being gathered together. Here's this gathered together against Christ. Whom thou didst anoint, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So these are the nations now. Here are these Gentiles gathering together. Herod, Pontius Pilate along with all the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do, now here comes providence. This is one of the clearest statements of providence. They are being gathered together to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. So this prayer, 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 is a massive statement of belief in providence. So anybody that says to you, there's no point in praying if you believe in providence, you just go to the Bible and say, then why do these people pray to affirm their belief in providence? And not only do they affirm it, they, they've got some petitions they want to come true too. And now Lord, all of that is great ascribing, acclaiming, reveling in the God to whom they pray, and he's a God of sovereign providence.
Now, Lord, take note. It's okay to tell God to take note. You say, why, why tell him to take note if he's going to take note? Well, because he's told us to do that. And in his inscrutable wisdom, he won't take note if we don't tell him to take note in many cases. You have not because you ask not. Isn't that an amazing statement for a God of sovereign providence to say? You have not because you ask not? In other words, if the causality of your asking goes out of the universe, my response goes out of the universe. Because I ordained the cause and I ordained the response. If the cause doesn't happen, the response doesn't happen. There's no contradiction here, but it's mind-boggling that a God of sovereign providence would say to us, you have not because you ask not. I base much of my future on your praying. I know, uh, and now Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. That's what they want. That's what I want. You pray for me Friday morning. Because there's a man I'm going to talk to Friday morning. He doesn't know the Lord. And I've asked him many times to give me some time to talk to him. And he said on Tuesday that he would give me some time. And so on Friday I'm going to try to set the time, lunch or breakfast. Let's go talk about the Lord. So my prayer is that I won't chicken out and uh, that he will be affected the way Lydia was affected with the opening of the heart. So this is really relevant here. If you believe in the providence of God, you can pray that the wills of unbelievers would be compliant to invitations to lunch. Now, Lord, take note. Where am I? The bondservants. Take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence. That's prayer for me, the speaker, with all confidence. God, give me confidence. While thou dost extend thy hand to heal. That's physical healing, probably mainly, but maybe not only. Healing of soul. Got it. Wake the sick soul up and do something out there. And signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant Jesus. End of prayer. And when they had prayed, the place where they were gathered was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I need to happen to me on Friday. And began to speak the word of God with boldness while the Lord stretched forth his hand, did signs and wonders. So my, my list of practical things, and I'm two minutes over, I'm going to just read them. One, resist the very authority that God ordains if it is contrary to his moral will. Two, build unity of mind through doctrinal commitments. That you read about here. Three, Saturate yourself with Scripture. How could you pray like that if you weren't bubbling over with Scripture? Four, pray rather than be fatalistic. Don't let anybody push you into the notion that if you believe in the sovereignty or the providence of God, there's no point in praying. That is a sophomoric response. A little sophomore trying to respond to the first glimpse of truth about an, an issue. When in fact, if he were to go deep to the root of the issue of the sovereignty of God, prayer is 
built into the very fabric of the universe, and he responds genuinely to praying for the most practical things. Example. I had trouble all last week. And I know I'm over time, but you like examples. You can go if you have to. I had trouble all last week with my computer. It was, oh, it was trying to get my Luther lecture ready, and I kept getting from Microsoft Word, system error, ignore or discontinue. I push ignore, nothing would happen. And then it says, it will shut down your program. Boom, it's gone. It's gone. And uh, it kept happening over and over. Well, today, I spent probably an hour writing a response to last night's elders meeting. I worked long and hard. This was in America Online, I'm composing. I got the same message from America Online. God, I don't want to lose all this stuff. Please, please, please don't let me lose it. I don't have any idea. I couldn't figure out any way to save it. And I just went boop, 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 and it disappeared. <gasps> I don't know which button I hit right. You know, it's nothing supernatural about it except that instead of giving up and hitting continue and losing it, I just said, <laughs> God runs the universe. He runs the universe and he will hear. I mean, I cried to the Lord. I don't want to lose this hour's worth of work. And he heard my cry and lifted me up. Okay, number five. Um, Seek the, fill, the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Seek the fullness of the Holy Spirit for boldness. And then courageously testify. Don't say, since God is sovereign and He's got providence over all people's wills, if He wants to save them, He can save them. I don't need to talk to my neighbor on Friday. That is doing exactly what John and I were talking about, namely trying to crawl into God's throne Conform your life to his sovereign dealings that you have no right to instead of simply obeying, go and make disciples. Father in heaven, I thank you for this time of, of study in the doctrine of providence. I know we're just scratching the surface and getting started, and I ask that all the mysteries and all the things that are strange to us, we would absorb grow in, live with, apply biblically, protect us from error and misapplication or imbalance, and grant that we would be strong now in prayer, strong in witness, strong in courage, strong in understanding and in living through whatever futile opposition comes against us in our life. Oh, Lord God, Give us as we go the great confidence that you're going to win. You're going to win, and you'll give us all the strength to get there and participate in the victory. In Jesus' name, amen.